Hello, this is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. In this episode, one of our great explorers, Sir Ranulph Fiennes, muses on what he's achieved. And this was recorded 20 years ago when he was merely in his 50s. He's in his mid-70s now. And Eric Newby, the man who defined and illuminated a whole style of travel writing, he looks back at going around the world in 80 years. And this interview was recorded just a while before he died. And then the remarkable Lucy Irving. She answered an advertisement to go to an island with a man she didn't know and have an adventure. It was a book and a film called Castaway. But then um, she had three boys and she took them to a different island. But that's coming up later. First, Sir Ranulph Fiennes. I met him. Um, you shake hands and his hand is rather different from the one he was born with because of the ravages of frostbite. But um, you read about his adventures and you think, if you'd managed to pass a few A-levels at school, then you might not have had to have done all this. Physics and um, maths A-levels meant that you could go to Sandhurst Cadet College and join the army as a regular officer, which mm. is what I wanted to do. But unfortunately, I couldn't get them, so I didn't, and that's why I ended up doing what I did. Yeah. <laughs> So, when you look back now, does, I mean, this book is kind of all the things I've done, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah. um, it's up to date. Do you, do you look back at it and go, wow, all this in, in one part of a lifetime? No, you, you just um, think what's next. You, you start looking at the next chapter all the time, um, otherwise you're sort of done. You, you mustn't ever rest on your laurels, which is one of the messages, I think, of the book. Yes, because this is, it is, it's, it's the distillation of the things you have learnt, isn't it? Um, and you start back with your earliest um, military stuff in the 60s. Was that formative? Yes, it was, except that um, fighting communists um, in sort of jungle desert areas... Um, you're up against human uh, obstacles which are much more lethal and unpredictable than natural obstacles like crevasses or um, sea that's moving about, or ice on the sea. You do say, you, you chronicle, what made, it, what made you think that leading expeditions could be a, a profession for you? What was the first one that you decided to do? Um, when I found that I couldn't stay in the army because of this lack of A-levels, I was about 26, I was sort of getting on. It was a time of mass unemployment in the UK and um, I got married. I needed to make a, a living pretty rapidly and um, the only thing the army had taught me which had a commercial application was teaching soldiers how to ski and climb and mountaineer and canoe. And um, so I could have become an adventure training instructor. Um, but in those days there weren't many of them, it was very competitive. It was before there were incidents of um, students on canoe trips drowning and a lot of blame being attached and then suddenly they wanted lots of adventure training instructors even for schools with diplomas. And um, when I was looking for a job that wasn't the case and so my wife and I decided that we would try to 
entrepreneurially um, set up a setup of expeditions which paid for themselves and also gave us a living. And um, we looked around, there wasn't anybody else doing it. They all had second jobs. Um, but we thought it might work, and so we started around about 1969 um, or 70, just before I left the army, whilst we still had the umbrella of army salary. Well, what was the first trip? Um, the first trip was a, a failure. Um, we were going across the Anatolian desert uh, by camel, and unfortunately they had a war there, so the Minister of Defence, under which we still were, um, told us we couldn't go with only four days before we were due to set out. So we had to switch it, and we switched it to something very secondary, like crossing the Pyrenees with a mule, I think. Um, but that was the early start. And at that point, I mean, you talk uh, about your, um, your, the way you have to use the English language, that uh, one page you're pitching for sponsorship and, and you want... Um, you want some Land Rovers or whatever, you go, oh, this is going to be so difficult. This is going to be so difficult. You know, you're going to get loads and loads of coverage. And then you're going straight on to talk to some insurance people and you're saying, I think the quote is, it's going to be about as exciting as a Tupperware party. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't think you could call that lying. To, no, 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 I didn't say um, it was lying. I just said no, it was but creative use of. Creative use, that sounds like lying. Um, <laughs> I think that um, it's just a question of putting everything in its correct perspective the way that they would like to hear it. So if you're talking to insurers and you want insurance, you describe it as non-risky. And if you're going to the Observer newspaper to try and get a lot of money for coverage, they like risk and so you make it sound risky. It's just a question, you know, what you focus on at the time. When did it come, when did you cross the line where, say, Land Rover were happy to help? There must have been a time when they weren't happy and that turns into a time when they were happy. Yeah, that's, that's the very awkward time and um, any entrepreneur is going to have to risk getting heavily into debt probably for a certain period and that is the, the big risk period where, where you're um, trying to get into a known situation where people will start trusting you because of what you've already done and that's very awkward and when you ask quite when we made the breakthrough, I suspect we made the breakthrough not um, until three years after we started, uh, we did an expedition in um, British Columbia, uh, which lasted about five or six months, I think. It was thousands of miles. And it happened that the BBC sent a film team with us. And it was very controversial. Um, the BBC guys were pretty unpleasant. Um, and we thought that the publicity was so bad that it would actually stop us progressing. But we soon learned that any publicity is helpful and the bad side of it soon gets forgotten and uh, I think that was when we made the breakthrough. Yes, you, you talk about the, B, the, the, the BBC guys not being the nicest people in the world. Um, then you move on and uh, there's an interesting bit where you are selecting people that you'll go on an expedition with and it seems that, the, the, that one of the lessons you've learned is get people who are good under stress, that are very relaxed and have, have got fully formed, rounded personalities. Don't find people who are potentially edgy because you don't want, them, you don't want them, that potentiality showing itself when you're in a difficult position. Yeah, I think you put that very well, the word edgy. Um, stress and unpredictability and discomfort um, brings it out in them. And when they're actually traveling 
and they start getting gangrene, that'll make them irritable. And it's just a question of not having people um, who get paranoid. You want them very level-headed, not actually thick, but um, possibly not having too much imagination. What is it that you have to dis you have to show as the leader? Because some of the things that you talk about in the book are not fun. And as I sit next to you, I'm very aware that parts of your hand, and that this you talk about this in the book, that um, you, you, parts of your fingers are not where they originally were. What qualities are there in you that give people the courage, the wish, to continue when maybe a logical response would be to say, actually, no? I would like to think that there was something uh, in my character which helped to get the other members of the team uh, to keep going. But uh, sadly, I think it's more the question of um, choosing the right people that don't need any real inspiration from the, from the leader. They are already, you've chosen them because they've got all the, the um, determination to keep going when they're under enormous um, stress and pain and all the rest of it. Is it a democracy when you're out there? Um, I like to make them think it is a democracy um, and will ask their opinions, providing if they come up with an opinion which is not the one I want them to come up with, I am prepared to go their way because it's not really too, much, too important. But where it's something is going to affect the possible success of the endeavour, uh, and I reckon it should be done that way, then why be democratic about it and have sort of meetings if you know inside yourself that you're not going to agree with anything other than the way you want to do it. So it's best not to make them think that they have got a possible effect on the outcome. So I think probably best to be a dictator, but try, try to make them think that you're not being a dictator. Would it have been more, would it have been easier for you to do the sorts of things you've done 50 years ago, 100 years ago, as, as you look at the planet? and you set about this career in the late 60s, and there you are looking very fresh-faced and very idealistic. Um, are you a man of your time or slightly out of time? Um, if you start getting out of your time, the modern media will maul you to bits. Um, so the, the science side of the expeditions is very important to the expedition, but to be honest, it's not terribly important to me. But we take scientists, they do very valuable work. Um, they wouldn't be able to do it if we didn't take them. Um, on one occasion, we, for instance, mapped uh, 1,400 miles of the world's surface in Antarctica where no map maker had been before. And actually, no human being had ever been into this whole vast area of Earth before us. I mean, we were the first human eyes ever to see this whole big area of the Earth, which is quite fascinating. It was also worrying for me because I hadn't been able to make a schedule not knowing what was there, if there were big crevasse fields or how high it would go. Um, only after we'd been there was it put on the map of the world. Now, if we had done that seven years later, we would have been too late because polar orbiting satellites can do it all and we'd have been redundant. But no, we were just um, within our time, which I suppose was quite lucky. Now we wouldn't be able to. In your 20s, 30s, 40s, you've done so much. At the end of the book, there's a picture of you 
running the London Marathon. There's a picture of you going up on a climbing machine. Um, how does being 50-something affect your career now? Do you, do you look at your, your body structure and do um, assessments of what it's capable of? The, the assessments get done by the people at Farnborough who assess uh, astronauts and soldiers and so on for special tasks. And um, they, six years ago, said that I was similar to 21-year-old athletes. So that was fine, but it was only fine then. Six years later, you know, it's only going to be fine if you've kept up the pressure. And it is really boring trying to keep fit. You waste a lot of time. But the older you get, particularly over about 47, you have to work on it much harder. So the only way of keeping going is to spend more and more time um, doing things like that. And after about 50, it's not only cardiovascular fitness that you need to work at all the time, it is also bodily strength, which until 50 you don't have to really work on at all because everyday movements will be enough to keep it going. But after you're about 50, if you're a typical person, um, the strength declines enormously. From 19, when you achieve your peak strength, up until around about 47 to 52, depending on you, um, it'll decline very, very slowly without doing anything to compensate. After 50, you've got to compensate really hard by, for the first time, doing stupid things like lifting up weights. And um, so the answer to your question is, you just got to work at it harder in order to achieve the same performance. That was Sir Ranulph Fiennes talking to me when his book Beyond the Limits, The Lessons Learned from a Lifetime's Adventures, uh, when that was published in November 2003, when he was in his 50s. Now, moving on to another writer who writes about travel, Eric Newby, the godfather, the sort of doyen of travel writers. Before he ever went travelling, he worked in a couture house, but uh, it wasn't going that well. And he had a suspicion that uh, he'd have to find something else to do. And I sent a telegram to a friend of mine in the foreign office in, uh, who was in Rio de Janeiro uh, and said, can you travel Nuristan June, Eric? And he sent me a cable from, from the British Embassy saying, of course, you. And we, this was the moment when we started to put, the, put our ridiculous uh, exhibition, expedition together. But it might have been ridiculous, and the book that came out of that expedition is so funny, uh, but you were kind of serious about it. Well, it is funny, actually, because when I'm depressed, which is not, not infrequent, <laughs> there's nothing out there to cheer one up very much, uh, I'm... Uh, I think, you know, I read the funny bits and they still make me laugh, you know. Yeah. What Hyde Clark said, you know, uh, that day in, in, in Grosvenor Street is still sort of, it's still in, it's still in, my, uh, in my memory. So for this book, this starts really when your career in haute couture finishes. Do you, yeah. ever, do you ever regret that you left fashion behind? Well, I had something like 15 or 15 years of it, uh, that's enough for anyone. I, I, I bought all the dresses for the John Lewis partnership with 11 department stores, and that's a tough job, I can tell you. You know, I lasted about three years for that, you know. 
my, my, my life, as I look on it, backward on it, is one of being sacked or threatened to be sacked. <laughs> and I've, I've managed, in a sense, to capitalize on being an idiot and, and not doing things right. In fact, you know, I've, I've, I, I, my life has really been a succession of disasters, and it's the overcoming of them that one think, hopes that the, the reader likes. Ah, and this, this is unusual because this is really um, a picture book. Um, yes. It's, it's, it's the whole lot. Getting short of mental ammunition. Oh, I see. <laughs> and do you always take a camera with you everywhere you go? Well, yes, I, I, but a lot of the stuff, why there are some country, a lot of countries missing from this is because, uh, because I used to take a lot of photographs for the colour magazine, so I had to be most of the pictures in colour, but I preferred black and white. More atmospheric? Yes, it's, it's, I just like it better, you know. Uh, <laughs> I did them for myself. It's very evocative. Yes. When, when you look back on it, do all the memories come yes. flooding back? Is, it, is this an aid memoir for you? Oh, certainly, yes, yes, yes. I, I always remember uh, Ella Mayart. Uh, she used to travel, but she never wrote anything down. She, she always just uh, uh, took hundreds of black and white photographs and never, never kept a diary. And the, and the photographs became the diary? Yes, which is quite the... Good. Yes, <laughs> it's easy. Yes. I mean, it, yes. there, are, there are beautiful pictures in here that actually aren't from the back end of beyond. There are pictures yes, that's in, right. in the UK yes. as well. Yes. So for you, do you, for it to be a good journey, a good bit of travelling, does it, does it necessarily involve long distances? No, not at all. No, I, I, I went on lots of... Very, I mean, if one goes back on all the sort of things I've written in the ob Observer's mm. travel, travel editor, I took them on great walks across the sort of Scottish borders and, and down to the Thames Estuary. Uh, we're in freezing cold weather, and they used to. The readers used to say, "We took your advice about the walk, and fell, we fell in the same hole on the banks that you did," which, <laughs> which was nice. So, it was part of your brief. Is part of your brief as a traveller to encourage us to follow in your footsteps? Well, I don't think anybody needs any encouragement now. I mean, uh, I, 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 I don't think they they need me to advise them. I, I think I was there at a particular moment, you know, and uh, um, probably gave them a bit of encouragement then, but now they'd be telling me how to do it. Is it all a bit too easy now? Is the adventure gone? No, I don't think so. My, my, my grandchildren have already been to more countries than I've been to, <laughs> which is rather amazing. Yeah. Yes. Here's a picture in, in a train, the Trans-Siberian Railway. Yes. What a mess. What a mess. Isn't it, yes. honest? It's, it's very Russian. <laughs> yes. Isn't it? When I came back from that journey, uh, the KGB had been most difficult to deal with. We had we paid them something like 5,000, 6,000 pounds for the pleasure of travelling with the KGB through. The KGB, not in tourist. And they, they blocked us at every point. So when I got back to when I got back to Moscow, I asked to see the chief KGB man 
And uh, he said, ah, Mr. Newby, I hope you enjoyed yourself. And I said, I didn't. <laughs> and, but nevertheless, just to show you uh, that I did bear you no ill will, I'd like to give you this tie. And you can wear this tie uh, next time you're standing on the Presidium in the Red Square and think of me. So I gave him an SAS tie. <laughs> <laughs> Did he know what it well, was? Well, I was hoping he was going to kill the bugger off. You see. <laughs> I never found out what happened, but <laughs> it was pretty. What a what a brute! That's a fantastic. Yeah, type. this one. Uh, I'm that's, looking. That's what the world <laughs> might have looked like <laughs> if things had gone worse. Yeah, you'll have to get yourself a copy of this book and have a look at this. Who, this me? No, not <laughs> you. <laughs> the person watching. <laughs> this is cars. Where's cars? Well, you have to find out about that. I mean, buy, buy, buy next week's magazine. Uh, it's Armenia. Is it? That's right. Well, it's sort of, yes. It's, it's, it's way out in the boondocks. You can yeah, take it, it from It me. looks like the moon. Yes, well, it, 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 being there, you'd have to be a lunatic to be there. <laughs> and you were. A lunatic. <laughs> yeah, and you were. Yes, I why, was. Why didn't you just go to the cushy places where the sun shone? Well, I did go to lots of places. I got sunstroke and all I could to prove it. Did you? <laughs> what about that slow trip? Which was the long river you went on? Uh, the Ganges. The Ganges. You can't do it. Yes, three thousand miles. What? What do you remember about that one? Well, that was absolutely amazing journey. Uh, we three thousand. Uh, we went twelve hundred miles down the Ganges. That's right. And sleeping on sandbanks in the middle of the river. God, it was, it was, the place was lousy with bandits, Hindu bandits and things. I always remember, if we get, get out of this, we're going to be damn lucky. But it was a marvellous trip. Uh, it really was. It was wonderful uh, to see the, the, the whole of the, 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 the river, a river, you know, which is you know, t up to 10 miles wide. It's a big river, some river. You know. And that was, that was a terrific journey. And after that, when I came back, I wondered how the hell I was going to be able to find uh, the, the, the money and the time to write, write a book. And lo and behold, I, David Astor called me to see him and offered me a job of travel editor of The Observer. Because this is the kind of insane luck I have in my well, life. But could it, did it ever strike you that you're quite good at it and that's why you get the luck? Well, I suppose so, yes. I, I'm not really sure I, well, I, I am frightfully good at, at that sort of thing. Wait, but when you were travel editor of The Observer, did you have to be bossy over people? Did you have to tell other people what to do? Well, not really, no. I, I used to, I, I, I didn't do all of I was a travel editor, I didn't do all the writing myself. No. I did quite a lot of it, but I mean, I didn't, I didn't actually, uh, I didn't, um, do the whole thing. I, I mean, uh, of course, going down the Ganges, I did the whole thing. But working then for that newspaper, what are the memorable um, journeys that stick out? Well, lots of journeys. For, for instance, crossing. I did a lot of long-distance walks in the north of England and uh, across the, from uh, from the from the North Sea to the Atlantic, and, and which were really sort of great walks in those days. Has this made you very fit? I was very fit. I'm a bit unfit now. <laughs> I was stumping in here with a bloody great stick. <laughs> but you're, you're 81 now? Yes. That's does, enough, I think. Yes, but does, does the urge to travel still stay with you? 
Uh, yes, it, it's somewhat diminished. <laughs> so what 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 uh, makes a good day for you now? I mean, you wouldn't be the sort of man happy just to go to Sainsbury's. You know, that's not your sort of travel, is it? No, not really. No, no. 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 But I mean, I I I, I accept the <laughs> existence of Sainsbury's. You know, no good pre pre pretending that Sainsbury's. Isn't, isn't there. there? Yes, I know, but yeah, you, that doesn't mean starve to death. Yes, but that doesn't mean you actually have to go. No, <laughs> no, that's right. No, get, get somebody else. <laughs> These are beautiful photographs. Did anyone ever teach you how to be There's a photographer? There's an earlier volume called um, um, "What the Traveller Saw" as well, but that's in but that's in uh, Harper Collins paperback. Right, it's very nice, uh, and this is the they may I imagine do a paper. Paperback, but not yet. Not yet. Let's encourage people to buy the hardback. Exactly, first. that's what we're doing. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Oh, Bali. Do you like? I mean, where is the nearest to paradise? You've been most places. Well, when I think Bali in nineteen in the nineteen sixties was pretty pretty good, pretty marvelous. Yeah, I really do. And uh, as I said, the Ganges uh, and uh, meeting Mr. Nero. And he wanted to go down the Ganges with us, but he wasn't fit enough, unfortunately. And uh, going to see Mr. Gandhi with, with Donald McCullen, the, the photographer, and uh, talking to, away to Gandhi, uh, to, sorry, Mr. Nero, who, who was, uh, had been uh, an old Horovian and a judge and everything you could think of, and McCullen pops up behind the sofa and says, Mr. Nero, do you, don't you have a bit of trouble controlling this rough old lot here in India? And, and uh, he, he, wouldn't say it to, he wouldn't speak to uh, uh, him again. That was the great Eric Newby talking to me in 2001. He died in 2006. And uh, for me, I'm a bit of a fan. I think his books are excellent. And that one, Around the World in 80 Years. And uh, that conversation was obviously filmed. And somewhere I've got the video. Where? I don't know. <laughs> one day, I'm sure it'll show up. And now, the very memorable Lucy Irvin. She is the woman who answered an ad to go to an uninhabited island with a guy she didn't know. It became a film, Cast Away, and Oliver Reed played the man. When I talked to her in 2000, there was a new book called Far Away. By that time, she was the mother of three small boys, and she decided to take her three boys, her three sons, with her to an island. Was the idea, I asked somewhat bravely, to give them the idea, let them experience what life on an island could be really like? Definitely. It had been my ambition um, from quite early on um, to give the children a taste of the positive side of life, uh, a desert island life that I'd had, because although I've talked about shortage of water nearly dying, I also adored the place. I loved it. Um, I loved the remoteness. I somehow wasn't frightened because when you have no recourse uh, to help, you somehow stop worrying. Um, you know, what's going to happen is going to happen. And I, I suppose I must be a fairly positive person because I, I chose to enjoy being there in whatever way I could. And I had the most marvelous wanders around the island, you know, discovered all the bats and the fruits. and. 
thoroughly enjoyed myself. And I wanted the children, while they were at the perfect age to climb trees, swim, um, do all those things that little boys should be doing, and not just sort of endlessly playing video games or whatever. Um, I thought, why not? Why not? Um, let's do it. OK. And you had a letter which got to you because some this chap would give... bizarre. Yes, yeah, some chap would yeah. given you a lift. Um, I'd yes, given him a you, lift. You'd yes. given him a lift. Well, and he'd said to you something like, oh, this is where that, um, that woman lives who yes. was the castaway woman. That's right. And I didn't confess to being who I was mm. because I thought, God knows, you know, he, he might start sort of giving me a long interview in the car and we had quite a long way to drive. And, um, so, and, um, so at the end, when I let him out, I just said, well, actually, you've, you've been talking to uh, the, castaway, the castaway woman. And he said, well, there's another woman you really must meet. Um, and she's been living on a tropical island for years and years and has raised a family there. So the, the feed for this story was there years and years ago, but I ignored it. Years went by. And then quite suddenly, Diana Hepworth, this extraordinary woman who's lived out um, on a five-acre dot in the middle of the Pacific, um, crossed the world and said, you are going to write my story. Um, <laughs> and you, like you, move, you move your head, <laughs> and presumably that's what she does, because this woman, I mean, you look at her in these 1946 photographs, and she was beautiful, wasn't she? She still is, in my view. Um, yes. Yes. Um, she was a Vogue model, um, and it is extraordinary that both she and her husband, who is a successful photographer, decided to really up and away. Um, they were the perfect couple, and I hope you know that amongst other things, there are, there are horrors in that book, but amongst the horrors, there's a story of a pretty good marriage too. And they went to Pigeon. They went to Pigeon Island. They left Britain in the big freeze of 1947 and searched for the perfect place to raise a family. And it's a rather nice sort of ideal. They had no money. Um, it didn't matter. They had a ship. The ship was there floating home, and it was also their means of uh, surviving. You know, for instance, they'd take paying guests around trips to the Galapagos um, in the early 1950s when only two yachts passed by per year, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and very non-PC, you know, Diana was jumping all over the giant tortoises and holding the flamingos and all this sort of thing. There were no restrictions then. You could go by donkey anywhere. And these people really did treat that great swag of ocean that is the Southern Pacific as their playground. You know, they, they went right the way uh, from one side of it to the other via the Calapagos, Tahiti, the Marquesas, Tuamotos, I mean, you name it, they went there, and all when it was totally undeveloped. I mean, there were six yachts in the harbour in Papit, in, in Tahiti. Um, imagine that now. Where exactly then? Where is next door to Pigeon Island? Nandeli Island, <laughs> um, which is occupied by um, local people described in Diana's husband's diary as primitives. Um, we must remember that Diana and Tom Hepworth came from another era. They left Britain in 1947 when there was still a lot of sense of empire, and they haven't really ever gone forward from that in, in their minds. Um, and I think a lot of people will read this book and, and be rather shocked by some of the attitudes displayed. But that was the world they came from. 
because they've been there for so long, the normal abrasion of living in a changing society has yes. been denied them, hasn't exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. And the normal contact for their children with um, other people has been denied them too. How many children do they have? Three children. Um, first they had a, a little girl who Tom adored um, called Tasha and uh, they thought she, everything was absolutely fine. Um, Diana's dream had been, not, now that they'd found their slice of paradise after over a decade at sea, and bought it for, this is again very non-PC, 15 quid and 10 sticks of tobacco. You know, that w things still worked like that in those days. This was 1958. 1959, they actually got back to the island with their first baby. Um, and they thought she was okay and everything was all right and, and he started a very lucrative business in crocodile shooting. Um, it was the days when ladies, you know, carried crocodile handbags and that sort of thing. Um, and then it was discovered after a couple of years that was something not quite right with Tasha. They couldn't pinpoint it, but she wasn't speaking normally um, and she couldn't seem to hear very well. It was discovered years later that she was not only severely retarded but schizophrenic. It's an extremely harrowing story, that part of it, because you know, you, you have photographs in the book of this darling little Eve in paradise, and the setting could not be more idyllic. And yet, sexual assault happened on the island. Um, her body was, was used by the island as their, play, as, as their plaything, and because she had no inner moral restraints being quotes, simple. She went sort of with it all the way. Um, she also had a very severe heart condition and had to have heart surgery at the age of nine. And in the end, it, it was it, very moving to me. And she would, when she was finally dragged off the island at the age of 25 to be put into permanent care, she would show everybody the scars on her heart, not to mention opening her legs to everybody. I mean, that w it was just one of the saddest stories I've ever heard and read about. I read it through her father's diary, um, which is a very intimate experience. Um, and I didn't know how much of um, her husband's diary Mrs. Hepworth had read. <laughs> so that was a bit of a facer. So that's the daughter, but there were sons. That, yes, there were sons. Um, twin sons, Ben, um, who, who started originally as Bresson, and Ross Hepworth, and two more different boys you could not imagine. Um, one of them, when he reached the age of puberty, and puberty always seems to be, in these remote situations, the, the pivotal point. Um, my children went out at the perfect age. They had, well, they've told me they've had the best year of their life, I mean, which for a mother is thrilling, you know. But when Ben and Ross, or breast and stroke Ben and Ross, reached puberty, the only girls they had around them were, of course, the, quotes, primitives. And mummy and daddy, being very British and coming from another era, and not, you know, having mixed in a de generation when we are brought up, you know, to uh, accept and respect every, every other creed on this earth, disinherited their son, one of their sons, when he took up with a local woman, when he went native, you know. I bring and he bought his bride for 10 quid. Um. <laughs> I bring that into the story now because then uh, we've got to, uh, we can't cover every story in the book, but we ta you, you're taking your three boys out there. Yeah. Um, and you're met by 
one of these boys, who's been a, a, a tribal leader, hasn't he? Yes, he was. He's the first. Um, he was the first elected um, president of remote Tomoto Province. And if anybody wants to get out a map and see how, just how remote Tomoto is. Um, they'll see what a feat that was. And he went around doing all his election speeches with a flotilla of dugouts um, and doing all his, all his electioneering in fluent pigeon. Um, he, but he was sort of manipulated into that position. It's terribly easy to think that it was the whites only who committed the acts of exploitation, you know, who paid terribly low wages for an full day's work and all the rest of it and expected people to dig out their cesspits and you know for a pittance and you know make make their breakfast when they could quite easily have chopped up their own pawpaw really. But the islanders had patience that would last generations if necessary. They were not happy about the fact that the island had been bought for fifteen quid and a few sticks of tobacco and they were going to get their own back sometime or another. Or else they were going to as so many of these so-called primitive people do, accommodate the Hepworths, as people accommodate Christianity, for mm. instance. Um, they, they were going to somehow draw them into custom. So it was very interesting when Ross had children. Did these children belong to the white colonials, or did they belong to Reef Islands? And it was decided they belonged to Reef Islands, and they are treated very much as Reef Island children. But so were mine, which was absolutely <laughs> lovely. <laughs> but there's a there's a lovely moment in the book where you are going to pigeon, I think for the first time. Oh and God! You're, and oh you're no. you're on this boat with an outboard, oh. and you're saying open canoe, open with, canoe yeah. with your pathetic little outboard, and with, with yeah. in mountainous seas. Mountainous seas. I mean, I'd gone there, you know, wearing my my fancy tilly hat and and wild fox shades. I mean, within within seconds of, of leaving, it was whack off with a hat, like, you know, like that across my throat. And you couldn't see anything at all. It was, it was quite the most terrifying experience I've ever had. And I had my three children with me. Um, and one of them's little. One of them, ben, ben, was very little at the time. And he was utterly terrified. I mean, he screamed and screamed and screamed. And at, at one point, he said something that I have never forgotten. When we were right in the middle of the ocean, no land in sight at all, and um, you know the, the guy at the tiller was sort of frantically looking at the compass, you know, which way are we going, sort of thing, because we couldn't see any land, and we'd just, you know, been through so many, so much tumultuous water. Um, and and Benji's little voice just reached me after he'd finished screaming and just started sobbing. He just said. Mum, why can't you do your writing at home? I think that last comment puts one's own childhood into some sort of perspective. That was Lucy Irvin, and the book that she was talking about is called Far Away. And that family, the Hepworths that she was talking about, you can find books about them and buy them in other places. This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. I shall be back with some more unforgettable conversations ere long.